Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, your host. This is training vlog number 26. I know it's been a few weeks, so we've got a ton of training footage, a ton of your own forms, checks, and questions. We're going to hop right into it. Make sure you stay tuned to the end of the video to figure out how you can submit your own question, your own training video for form review right here on our YouTube channel. So without further ado, let's hop into this. All right. So this first question is from Thomas Denhasi. He says, I'm a 26 year old that's been powerlifting for about a year now. I'm 190 centimeters and 128 kilos. So I guess it's like 6'2", 286 or so. Uh, just did my powerlifting, my first powerlifting meet and had a total of about 420 kilos. So that's a little over 900 pounds. Uh, now I want to go down a weight class for the next meet, which is in February. My question to you is what would be an ideal program to execute for maximum weight loss yet retain as much strength that I have worked hard for? My thought was going for the Texas method with cardio in between and one rest day and of course track intake with my fitness pal but I need help on the strength program. The problem here is the forced linear progression that seems impossible the more you cut weight. Any help is appreciated. You are a doctor amongst the bro science. Hey, thanks Thomas. So I think a few things. One, linear progression is just a type of periodization model that can be used. It's not mutually exclusive from using things like RPE, percentages, block training, Basically, it's just a type of uh, progression uh, from week to week, usually, or session to session in the case of a novice. And again, you can use it in various different types of programs, uh, although it's not typically our uh, preferred periodization uh, and progressive overload approach. Uh, to your second question, should you do the Texas method? My answer to that would be no, um, for multiple reasons. The no, no, or the current form of the Texas method does not adhere to progressive overload principles. The average intensity doesn't go up. The volume doesn't go up. The amount of training frequency and exercise variety doesn't go up. And, act, and so it does not adhere to the principle of progressive overload. It's not a good program to run post novice until you unless you modify it significantly to a point where it's no longer Texas method as far as where that line in the sand is where it's no longer Texas method sure that's up for debate but I would not start from the base template of Texas method and then adjust from there it's just not something I, I think is worthwhile to do there's nothing uniquely great or awesome about the you know uh, base template of Texas method that you should start there there's plenty of other uh, training programs out there that I think would be a better start starting point. I feel the same way about five through one. And in fact, I wrote an article about this called into the great wide open, which I've linked below. You didn't read that. And people will hate me on the internet for this. They'll say, Oh, you don't like Texas mother. You don't like five through one. I get more about five through one. It's like, well, it doesn't mean that you can't modify the programs or structure them in a way that makes them productive for you. It's just, why would you start there? It, you know, there's not a ton of, you know, uh, useful stuff right baked into the base template um, when that can be defined. So I think I would start somewhere else. Uh, now you're asking how should you lose weight? That's going to be a calorie deficit. Uh, I've linked the uh, article below in, uh, to be a beast. I think that's a great way to um, set up your initial calorie intake and you should be in a calorie deficit because I would lose weight. 6'2", 286 and your total is just over 900 pounds. I think yeah, you're probably carrying a little bit too much body fat. If I had to guess, I don't know what your waist size is. So I've also linked an article below about how to measure your waist because I would be tracking those on a every other week basis um, and making sure that they're going down, just assuming that you're carrying a, a little too much body fat. And I would actually expect you to get stronger if you trained with the appropriate programming, um, even if it, if it was using a linear progression type uh, setup. But I don't think Texas method would be my choice. I would use the bridge. I would do two days of GPP early on, which normally we wait towards the end of the program to get people into it. But for you, I think 
pursuing weight loss is a good idea. So I do the bridge, two days of GPP from the jump. I've linked that below along with how to measure your waist, the uh, how to set your initial calories using to be a beast article. And then also if you want to read up on why Texas Method and 5 through 1 are both inadequate or inefficient ways to set up your programming, I've also linked that article. And I expect to receive a lot of comments below about people who haven't thought hard enough about what I'm actually saying there. So sorry about that. Let's move on to the second question. All right, question number two. This is from Tino Coco. Uh, I've been living under the impression that if you eat more calories than you burn, you gain weight and vice versa. I know that macros matter to the point that our bodies as individuals react differently to different macro levels as it comes to perceived fatigue, body composition, and compliance. It's actually not not true. Uh, but ah, my cousin linked me a video that tries to explain how fructose is a liver toxin and because of the way sugar metabolizes calories from it, it forms more fat than calories from some other foods. Even if your daily calories stay the same, another exclamation point. I have a hard time believing this. Could you shed some light on this matter? Sure. Well, your cousin and the uh, video that I won't link because it's had over a million and a half views or one and a half million views, uh, they're both just babbling nonsense that's uh, not scientifically accurate. So the video is made by this dance, uh, Nancy Lynn DeGregory. She is a PhD. She has a PhD in nutrition sciences from Clayton College of Natural Health. She calls herself a holistic nutritionist. And unfortunately, none of those things have any academic bearing. I can't really uh, recommend her or somebody with that type of degree or that professional title as a viable resource for health information. In fact, maybe just the opposite. The video itself is filled with rambling pseudoscience, scare tactics, fear mongering stuff that is I suppose designed to get people to change their behaviors for the positive, but ultimately I think you're supposed to buy product, some products after that. So I don't, I don't see it being a net good. I mean, if you're going to use something like, Oh, fructose, you know, eating a bunch of fructose, um, in the way of sugar sweetened beverages, because it's in high fructose corn syrup, if you're trying to use that as a scare tactic to get people to change their behaviors and ultimately put them in a calorie deficit so that they lose weight, if that's your overall goal, I think it's a really strange way to approach that goal. Uh, and I don't think you need to lie about the actual science behind stuff in order to achieve that goal anyway. So I probably wouldn't use that. In any event, let's talk about the question at hand. Like, is fructose um, inherently fattening? Is it, you know, something we should be afraid of in any quantity? And, and what do we do about it? So fructose is not a liver toxin. Fructose is a simple carbohydrate that is easily metabolized by multiple tissues in the body. Uh, we, If you're in a calorie deficit, it does not really matter what you're eating. And I would actually argue that the any sort of manipulation of macronutrients within a person's diet, if they're in a calorie deficit, doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter if it's high fat, low carb, low carb, uh, low fat, high carb, low fat, whatever permutation, it doesn't matter. The only thing you can make an argument for that matters as long as you're in a calorie deficit is the si size of the calorie deficit mainly. And with a small, maybe secondary caveat to uh, uh, how much protein you're taking in as far as how much lean body mass a person loses while they're losing weight and uh, potentially satiety and potentially compliance tend to improve with higher protein intakes, especially as the carbohydrates are reduced. Um, proteins are also very satiating. In any event, outside of that, macros don't change the fatigue, the, uh, uh, but maybe with the protein intake, yeah, sure, you could see the improved body composition comparatively. Maybe. Okay, let's move on to this fructose thing. Not a liver toxin. Um, I would agree that consuming too much in the form of like sugar sweetened beverages, I'm probably not on board with that because it is correlated with other unhealthy behaviors like being sedentary, being in a, a over overeating, so being a calorie surplus, and uh, and things of that nature. 
That being said, if you eat fructose in a calorie deficit, it doesn't matter. In fact, a study was done. So Londes et al. from the Rippey Lifestyle Institute, a bunch of researchers out of Florida, uh, did this 12-week randomized controlled trial. They had 160 obese folks. Their body fat was greater than 40. And they were put on one of four different diets. All four of these diets were calorie-restricted. About almost 400 calories uh, was the restriction level. Uh, one diet had 10% of the calories from high fructose corn syrup. One had 20% of calories from the high fructose corn syrup. One had 10% sucrose. Sucrose is half fructose, so that's really about 5% of the daily calories coming from fructose. And the other one got 10% of sucrose, which is, uh, again, uh, about half. Uh, half of it is fructose. So in any event, there was no difference in how much body fat they lost. They all lost weight. They all lost body fat. Cholesterol levels all improved. Um, there was no statistically or clinically significant difference between the improvement. Um, and, you know, the thought they, they had this really interesting quote that I, I want to read. Um, initially, there was a concern uh, that was the that was raised that there might be a unique relationship between obesity and the consumption of high fructose corn syrup because of the temporal or time association between increased use of high fructose corn syrup in the American food supply to the increased prevalence of obesity between 1970 and 2000. Despite the popularity of the suggestion, there are numerous reasons why this hypothesis should be discarded. First, the temporal association between high fructose corn syrup and obesity ended in 1999 when high fructose corn syrup use began to diminish. Uh, so basically, they stopped using it uh, as much in 1999. And so that <laughs> that the relationship no longer persists. And so you, they, why would you continue to talk about high fructose corn syrup or fructose uh, at this point? That's a good point. Secondly, numerous countries around the world have similar increasing prevalence of o overweight and obesity as the United States, but do not use high fructose corn syrup, suggesting that maybe there's something else going on on a population level that uh, in multiple different countries, uh, maybe even culturally. Uh, lastly, subsequent research and uh, studies have shown that there is no difference between high fructose corn syrup or sucrose in any metabolic parameter measured in human beings, including glucose, insulin levels, leptin, ghrelin, triglycerides, uric acid, appetite, or calories consumed at the next meal. So all this is suggesting, is suggesting that fructose, you know, again, we may not love it as part of sugar-sweetened beverage, um, intake because again that's correlated with other maybe potentially negative uh, or unhealthy behaviors but we can't villainize one particular aspect of food uh and we can't you know hang our hat that that is the cause this is the problem um so anyway i'm not reposting the video that you sent me because 1.5 million views well how do i get 1.5 million views you just start making stuff up and i think people will watch uh but yeah that's uh I'm not, I'm not really worried about the fructose intake, again, as, unless I'm trying to change behaviors, in which case I would advise against uh, sugar-sweetened beverage intake, uh, for especially for overweight and obese folks. Um, that being said, I, I would not lie to them and say it's for the due to the fructose. I would say it's due to the extra calories, which would actually be have the benefit of being true. So, all right, next question. All right, this next question is from Jeremiah Woody. I've heard y'all talk about sports-specific training before and understanding that basic strength training is a good place to start. I was wondering if y'all had any input on specific movements that a golfer could implement into their training other than just the regular squat, deadlift, bench, and press, or if just regular practice along with strength training should be fine. Thanks. Any input would be appreciated. Uh, so the short answer to this is no, not really. I don't think that there's a case to be made for any specific type of exercise other than the ones you listed 
that would fall outside of our normal training variation stuff that we recommend. What I mean by that is there's not that one weird exercise that a golfer should include in their training that's uh, uniquely different than a non-powerlifting sort of application. And what I mean by that is if you have a person who's just trying to get strong in general, right, and across multiple different tasks, multiple different modes, then you wouldn't just have them squat, bench, deadlift, press. You would likely have them do different variations, different tasks in order to improve their force production or strength in different contexts because they're not trying to specialize. So hyper-specialization needs to be reserved for, um, you know, dedicated athletic pursuits or if that's the only way you can get somebody to comply with training. But if I had a person who's never going to go to a powerlifting meet, I would have them do more variations. And that's the same way I feel about golfers. So we need to figure out if actually improving a golfer's strength would improve their performance. And in fact, the data suggests definitely that improving muscular strength uh, improves their performance on golf course. In fact, the lower the handicap uh, all the way down through scratch golfers show increased strength and muscular power in the trunk, legs, and shoulder girdle, uh, also grip strength. And so I wouldn't uh, address any one of these like, you know, hyper specifically, meaning practicing the test uh, where they're being um, uh, evaluated under, but rather I would try to improve leg strength, um, you know, with multiple different movements, including uh, different types of deadlifts and squats. I would try to improve leg power. Now that's a velocity dependent relationship. So I would probably actually do some more high speed training there as well. Uh, I know that shoulder girdle strength and power are also both uh, positively correlated with uh, uh, the handicap uh, thing. So basically, the stronger and the better people perform on these muscle tests, muscular tests, the lower their handicap was. So I would also do uh, very different variations of the press and bench press. And I would also likely include some speed work there as well, because that would help improve the velocity specific uh, strength. So in order to improve high velocity strength, you have to train at high velocities, you cannot do it slowly. There are different adaptations that occur in each process. Um, and the last thing, since the trunk, uh, trunk power, uh, has also been associated with the lower handicap, I'd actually probably do some medicine ball rotational throws. And that's, you see that all the time and people laugh at it and they say, eh, that's no strength conditioning. And it's like, well, why wouldn't it be? You're, you're, uh, training using an external resistance that allows you to create force against this external resistance at, at a very rapid speed. And so that's high velocity force production. That's how you train for power. And uh, it's fairly specific to a golfer. Now, I wouldn't do that all off the bat. If I had a golfer who never trained before, it'd probably look uh, a little simpler, you know, less variations on the squat, maybe maybe two, less variations on the bench and press, and maybe two or three, and less variations on the pull. But I would not hyper-specialize them like I would a powerlifter. And the differences between a powerlifter and the golfer are that the powerlifter, I would have no high-velocity uh, work because the, that does not contribute to the specific adaptations that you need to excel in powerlifting, which are low velocity, uh, strength adaptations. But in golf, you do need some aspect of high velocity force production. And so I have to train at high velocity. So I'd probably do, um, some dynamic effort work, uh, initially maybe once or twice a week at first on a newer trainee and then more, uh, later on, maybe even representing a 50, 50 balance later on down the road for an actual competitive golfer, considering that training in the gym is unlikely to be the bulk of their total, uh, training program, considering how much time they have to spend out on the course. And again, the med ball rotational throws, I'd probably do that, um, for somebody who's, uh, uh no longer a newer trainee. So, 
that's how I would train for golf. Uh, and so there's a few differences depending on the actual specific context. And again, it makes sense that a power lifter or a barbell sport athlete would train differently than a golfer and vice versa. Next question is from Evan Baker. Could you please comment on how you would train an athlete focused predominantly on getting faster and jumping higher? There's a large industry out there for this very question, but lots of advice seems kind of made up. That's welcome to the strength and conditioning industry. One topic I was most curious about is the idea that you can influence the amount of fast twitch, uh, you can influence the amount of fast twitch muscle fiber you have. Is this true? Example I've read long isometrics or slow super maximal eccentrics, uh, reorganize your muscles to have more fast twitch muscle fibers. No, that is not true. On the same token, I have read a focus on near maximal traditional lift transition, fast twitch fibers to slow ones. I would really like your opinion because I appreciate your logical sense or your logical responses and citing of scientific sources. Okay. So, hey, Evan, let's jump into it. Um, let's start with a kind of background overview and then go through line by line here and see what we've got. So muscle fibers uh, have historically been classified into one of three different types. Uh, and Basically, there's slow twitch and then two different types of fast twitch muscle fibers. So slow twitch are type one. They're slow, oxidative, can go for a long time. Not, they don't create a ton of force, but they do so for a long period of time. And then there's the fast twitch and there's two types of them. One is type 2A and the other is type 2X. Type 2X uh, are effectively your very high velocity, very high force production muscle fibers, but they fatigue super, super quickly. So you would use those when you're jumping, uh, sprinting for very short distances, punching, kicking, for, you know, once or twice. But if you had to repeat the effort, you would uh, transition to using more type 2A fibers, which are still fast, still produce a ton of power and force, um, but last a little bit longer. So not quite as much force as the type 2X. Um, interestingly, now at present day, there are seven uh, different types of muscle fibers uh, that are commonly discussed in the literature. Uh, and the way they discuss these is by identifying what are called the myosin heavy chain or MHC isoforms. So what they do is they look at a muscle fiber under a microscope using a specialized type of stain and they can say oh this is mhc type 1 type 1 muscle fibers mhc type 2a type 2x the biggest issue in here uh, when discussing how they identify the different types of muscle fiber types is that a single muscle fiber may actually express more than a single one isoform previously it was thought that if you looked at a, uh, at a muscle fiber under a microscope and it was mhc type 1 then it was slow twitch isoform but now we know that that single muscle fiber can actually have more than one isoform one heavy chain that's associated with it so you could look under the microscope once and say oh that's slow twitch because it's got mhc 1 but then it may also somewhere else in the muscle fiber have mhc 2 or 2x or these different types so that is a problem when assessing the evidence suggesting that different muscle fiber types can switch um, between type one and type two, because that's the big question you're asking. Go, can one go from slow to fast or fast to slow? Um, the other question you asked in there was that uh, traditional type of resistance training, can that make you go from uh, fast twitch muscle fibers to slow twitch and that's not really what happens rather you get a transition of type 2x fibers those high velocity very high force production but uh, not very fatigue resistant muscle fibers they convert to type 2a so when you're in the gym you're doing your sets of five or whatever that's a conversion of 2x to 2a muscle fibers that happens regularly and so if you had a sprinter jumper um, somebody who had to who really wanted to focus on uh, being very, very explosive for a single or second 
uh, or even maybe three top efforts, then you might want to focus on higher velocity training and not traditional resistance training with multiple sets, uh, multiple rep uh, efforts, which would again cause that conversion from type 2X to type 2A. That's been repeatedly shown in literature over and over and over again. And I've linked some studies below uh, that discuss that. Now, if instead of doing, you know, multiple sets uh, of multiple rep efforts, you do, you know, lower volume, single sets, single reps or two reps at very high velocity, you get a change from type 2A to type 2X. Again, higher velocity force output, which would be good for when you need to um, create force at high velocities, like jumping and sprinting. So it just depends on the application. So I think if you were going to train an athlete who's focused primarily on sprinting and jumping very high for very short efforts, then you could make a case for doing high velocity strength work. And if you had an athlete who was primarily interested in powerlifting, then you would not do those things because you're interested in low velocity force production, kind of like the similar discussion we had in the last question. Um, let's give you guys a little more like this muscle fizz background because there's some element of your question that suggests that the amount, the relative amounts of muscle fiber types are trainable. Um, so using this sort of classic uh, categorization um, of slow twitch being a type of muscle fiber and then fast twitch being the other type and two subtypes of the fast twitch type 2A and type 2X, you know, can you actually influence how much of one that you have uh, that you have via training, or is it more about something that you were born with? So, untrained individuals, Costal and colleagues, uh, they did this classic study uh, where they assessed untrained folks, and untrained individuals had about 50-50. So, 50% slow twitch, 50% fast twitch. Um, in athletic populations, we see middle distance runners um, and endurance folks with 60 to 70 or even up to 80% of slow twitch type 1 muscle fibers. Uh, sprinters usually have 80% fast twitch muscle fibers uh, in this particular study. Power lifters, weight lifters have a little bit less, talking 60 to 70% fast twitch muscle fibers. And then ultra endurance and marathon specialists tend to have 40% um, uh, fast twitch, 60% uh, slow twitch. So again, the way that you would predict how someone, uh, uh, somebody's muscle uh, fiber ratio is between slow and fast twitch is exactly what you'd expect based on their sport. A weightlifter, you would expect to have a higher percentage of fast twitch muscle fibers compared to slow twitch. And an endurance athlete, you would expect them to have a higher percentage of slow twitch muscle fibers compared to uh, fast twitch. And this does not appear, it does not appear that you can actually change these things from slow to fast and fast to slow. Um, only studies that have shown that to occur is when people take the nerve, they either denervate, so they rip the nerve out of the muscle fiber because the uh, uh, normal or the, the default sort of muscle fiber type and the characteristics are fast twitch. So if you take the nerve supply away from a slow twitch muscle fiber, it'll change to a fast twitch. I probably wouldn't recommend doing that at home. <laughs> also, if you take the motor nerve supply of a fast twitch muscle fiber, uh, and you get, uh, put it, hook it onto a slow twitch muscle fiber, then that slow twitch will convert to fast twitch. So you can do that, but those are all surgical, uh, procedures. Um, and again, the yield is unknown, uh, because nobody's done this for athletic performance at this time. Um, you can't switch from type one to type two via training. And again, any, there are a few studies that suggest that this might be possible. However, again, if we know that the way they're identifying these muscle fibers, under the microscope using the specialized stain, if you know that you can identify different 
types of muscle fi- uh, uh, the, you know, the different types of myosin heavy chains, MHCs within a given muscle fiber, you could see how that could potentially be problematic and saying, oh, this muscle fiber converted to type two. It might've been there the whole time or this muscle fiber, this fast twitch muscle fiber converted to type one, slow twitch, but it might've been there the whole time. Um, in any event, I listed, uh, I linked three, uh, no, four, um, really, uh, really good studies on this below. So you can read into that a little bit more. Again, the TLDR, no, you can't switch between type one and type two or type two to type one. You can't do that. You can switch within type two, the fast switch muscle fibers. You can go from type two X to type two A. Again, that's a little bit more fatigue resistant, high, high force muscle fiber, but it contracts at a little bit lower velocity. That's what happens when we do traditional uh, strength training. Um, and then you can go from type 2A to type 2X um, if you lower the training volume and increase the contraction velocity. So you can't just decrease the uh, the training volume and keep the inten- and up the intensity. That actually would not do anything as far as muscle fiber um, architecture goes. You actually need to make sure that the intensity or the uh, velocity goes up, not necessarily the intensity. Right, next question from Paul May. Uh, hey, my name is Paul May. I'm a follower, customer from Brookings, South Dakota. I think you're the only one. You're the one person from South Dakota. <laughs> uh, I'm a 24-year-old male, 5'9", 175 pounds, around 14% body fat. I'm currently on week seven of the bridge and plan on following it with two bouts of the 12-week strength program to prepare for competition in March. Uh, I will be competing in the 83 kilo class. I'd like to fill out the weight class while leaning down to about 10% body fat for both performance and aesthetic reasons. My planned method has been to slowly lose weight till I reach my desired leanness. And then I will slowly gain lean mass until I sit around 180 pounds. Am I going about this the right way or would it be better served with an isocaloric diet? Can an intermediate lifter effectively recomp on an isocaloric diet? Ooh, lots of questions here. Uh, so you're 175 pounds right now. You're eight pounds away from filling out the weight class uh, for 83 kilos. And you cannot do that while leaning down to 10% body fat. So as you gain weight, your body fat is going to increase, although the percentage may not change that much if you have favorable genetics. Um, it's unlikely that you can lose body fat while gaining muscle at the same time unless you are very untrained or very obese. Usually that does not occur um, unless one of those two are present. Now, you could uh, potentially lose weight and gain a little bit of muscle mass. If, again, if you have favorable genetics or, or are untrained or are obese, but for you specifically, I don't think that's a great plan. I mean, you're five foot nine, 175, and uh, your body fat's 14%. My recommendation would be to gain weight. I would actually have you gain weight up to over the 83 kilo class, maintain, and then maintain a few pounds over the weight class, and then cut down um, one or two pounds or whatever you need to do right before the meet and see how you do. This is, you know, a powerlifting meet. Uh, I don't know how you've done in previous powerlifting meets, but. You can only determine your competitiveness retrospectively. So you're suggesting that at 83 kilos and 10% body fat, which would likely take a few years to do from where you're at right now, um, you're at the idea that you'd be most competitive um, at that weight class with that body fat can only be determined retrospectively after you've done that. Um, you may find that you'd actually be a better 190, you know, or 205, 93 kilo lifter or 74. It just depends. I don't know your numbers yet and, and they're not in here. And so it's hard to say prospectively if uh, you're on point here, but I would say given your body fat age, um, and where you're at in relation to a meet, I would plan on gaining to a little bit above the 83 kilo weight class and then lose a little bit of weight going into the meet. And that's what I would do. Um, yeah. All right. Let's move on to the next question. This is from Sunil Rao. 
I'm 47 years old, 170 pounds, five foot six. I was progressing well on my lifts until about a week ago when I developed some type of gastroenteritis. My uh, oral intake was severely limited for three days, during which I could only consume Gatorade and no protein. I have recovered somewhat, but still have limited oral intake due to GI upset if I eat too much. I went back to lifting this week, and it's clear that I've lost much of my gains. I struggled to squat a weight 40 pounds below my max. I wonder, like a max at a five, or you max it out on singles? Anyway, uh, as I slowly get back to a normal diet and increase my protein intake, I'm wondering how I should approach programming. Should I reset significantly and do the novice linear progression? So just a few things. One, your protein intake is not associated with your strength performance in the short term. Maybe in the long term when we talk about lean body mass improvements um, or lean body mass maintenance during weight loss, but a short-term protein intake has no effect on your um, your, your performance. So we need to like divorce that idea. The other thing is I hope feeling better. <laughs> um, so I think it's a combination of not training for a period of time while you're feeling ill, acute weight loss, which apparently is likely due to de- dehydration due to your decreased intake and the actual in- intrinsic illness process themselves, as far as, you know, you're having an illness and then the in- immune system's response to that, all of those combine, all those things combined likely produce your acute or short-term decrease in performance. And so what should you do about that? I don't think you should do anything. I think you should return to normal training, normal programming, and as far as much as you have to decrease the load that you would otherwise use in order to get the desired, the correct amount of stress to get the desired training adaptation, do that. So if you're using percentages, then you may have to adjust the weight based on what you think your, you know, 1RM is currently. If it's RPE, you're fine. And if it's a discrete load, meaning, oh, I'm supposed to do 220 for three sets of four uh, today, and you feel like you're about 10% weaker, we'll knock 10% off that. And, you know, sure, there's some fuzz around how accurate and precise you can, you know, predict where you're at relative to your previous performance, which is one of the benefits of using RPE. You can, you know, have a little bit better scale there. Uh, but I think I would just do the same program. I don't think I w- you need to go back to the novice progression. I think you need to get back to training so you don't suffer any more detraining and loss of mu- uh, muscle uh, coordination and, um, you know, uh, skill with, with respect to performing the lifts. And I think you should get your uh, oral intake back to where it was normally. And uh, I think as long as you're uh, rid of this disease, uh, then you should be okay. So that's what I would do. Let's move on to the next question. Our next question is from Edmundo Luis Vega. I just have a question about programming the rack pull from the mid shin as a primary pull movement instead of the competition deadlift. In this scenario, I would be performing a snatch grip rack pull from the mid shin as a secondary pull for the week. My rationale is I do not plan on competing in powerlifting. My main goal is uh, my main goal of these pulls is for hypertrophy of the upper back, and I have a tendency to injure myself via lower back tweaks mid to late in a strength program involving competition deadlifts. Uh, okay, so let's address this last part first and then go back into it. Um, this tendency to injure yourself via lower back tweaks mid to late in a strength program suggests that the acute on chronic workload has become too high and potentially some other outside factors as far as how if you expect that you're going to get injured and then you manifest this sort of pain response, pain experience. That's uh, uh, that's something to look into. I, I think more importantly is managing workload, managing fatigue. That's the most important thing. And if you're not able to do that currently, then that is a skill that you need to develop prior to passing go collecting $200. Um, I would look back historically and see what trends you can find amongst your uh, previous programming and see and pick apart, well, what worked, what didn't. 
maybe I should try this different thing. If that, if that means lowering average intensity, you can do that. If that means lowering volume such that you, you know, you don't have this, uh, excess fatigue that ultimately produces a pain experience for you. That's, you got to figure that out. You can't just change the movements because again, I wouldn't expect that these two movements uniquely prevent you from, or, or help you manage your, uh, acute on chronic workload. I don't think that you can, um, I don't think that's likely to happen. So I don't know if the movements matter that much outside of this expectation that you won't get hurt, in which case um, the expectation might play a role in you actually the pain experience, which would be okay. But I will also not avoid movements. Um, rather, I would figure out this programming aspect of it. All right. So let's move on to this. If your goal is hypertrophy of the upper back, I don't think that snatch grip anything Snatch grip rack pulls or that rack pulls from the mid chin do better than a traditional pull from the floor. I don't think any of them are that good. I mean, they work the shoulder girdle and the traps isometrically. Um, and so they're, and the range of motion is effectively is minimal compared to a thing like a row. So I think any, virtually any type of row, if done for the correct amount of volume, uh, at a, at a intensity that allows for, uh, motor unit, you know, high levels of motor unit recruitment. So if you do a lower weight, you need to do it for more reps, um, such that the fatigue built up within the set actually increases motor unit recruitment. That's how we do that. And you likely do that for multiple sets. Um, I think that any row beats any pull from, from that perspective for just straight up hypertrophy. I think that sure, if you're arguing at a snatch grip, deadlift or snatch grip rack pull in, increases hypertrophy relative to a con, you know regular grip you know conventional grip deadlift you can make that argument until the volume gets high enough to where you reach the hypertrophy threshold from a single session in which case it just doesn't matter which is what i think is likely to occur so i don't i wouldn't expect to see more development from a snatch grip rack pull from the mid chin than a rack pull from the mid chin and in fact you're decreasing the range of motion of the actual lift um with respect to the hips, uh, the musculature about the hips and knees and ankles. So the lower extremity, um, I don't think that's probably a good trade-off. I'd try to figure out a way to pull from the floor. Now, if you can't get the programming variables sussed out, then maybe you try, uh, you know, maybe the rack pull from the mid chin is a great thing to do. And, you know, RDL would be probably a, a better pull than the snatch grip rack pull as far as, you know, overall, development of the lower extremities and for upper back stuff, I think you got to do rows That's and, and presses. That's, that's what I would do. Um, you know, as far as development of the erectors, squatting is going to help any type of pull like an RDL or even mid chin rack pull is going to be helpful, but I would try to figure out a way to pull from the floor. That's what I would do. And if you do have some desire to get good at pulling from the floor, then I think you need to do that. But if you don't, I don't care what kind of deadlift you do. You would do trap bar deadlifts. That's fine. Have you tried sumo deadlifts? Some, some people do pretty well with those um, just based on the expectation and potentially the decreased amount of fatigue that the lower back uh, receives acutely. But again, it's all going to come back to, um, you know, workload management. And that's a programming sort of tenant that needs to be learned. And I wouldn't avoid learning it. So, all right, let's go on to the last question. James Meacham. Are there any benefits to supersetting primary exercises such as deadlift, press, squat, and bench beyond potential time efficiencies? I like that you call them primary exercises, like colors, you know? Um, let's see. Perhaps you could develop increased work capacity, conditioning improvement, hypertrophy, and or strength gains uh, given appropriate volume and intensity. Do you ever prescribe these and or utilize them yourself? So let's go answer these in backwards. Do I ever uh, prescribe these or utilize them myself? No, never uh, outside of potential time 
um, improvements, um, not for the big lifts, um, because there's usually other, there are other aims that I'm trying to achieve. Okay. So we'll talk about that here shortly. Uh, they would actually compromise strength improvements if you did them this way, because, uh, you know, so again, deadlift and press, they're alternate, they're, uh, there's no overlap really in the primary movers for the lift. Uh, so you're, uh, you know, the deadlift is mostly lower extremity. The press is mostly upper extremity. Sure, there's some overlap with the trunk. I get it. Um, but ultimately, since there's not a lot of pre-fatigue going on, um, effectively, the metabolic demands of the superset themselves become the limiting factor as to into performance, which ultimately compromises how much weight on the bar you can use. And you, you're not getting any additional motor unit recruitment from that fatigue. It's just, this is just a metabolic, uh, a systemic metabolic limitation or cardiorespiratory, uh, limitation, more accurate way of saying that. So because the weight on the bar is compromised, the actual strength, uh, improvements would be less. So yeah, if you wanted to get better at doing presses after deadlifts and that you were calling that an improvement in strength because your performance would go up, the better you got. Uh, adapted to this task, then sure, but it wouldn't improve your, uh, one RM to, you know, to five RM, that kind of, that kind of weight. Um, I would not expect it to do that. I would, in, in fact, I would expect it to be worse because again, since the weight on the bar is compromised, um, you don't get the technique development, the intramuscular coordination, the voluntary activation of the motor units and the muscle tendon adaptations that, uh, improve strength overall. And, um, you can only do that through more heavier weights for hypertrophy. I would expect no real difference. Um, to be honest, I think as long as the volume is, is substantial enough, uh, or the, uh, intensity used and then subsequent volume at that intensity is substantial enough to recruit high threshold motor units and therefore a lot of muscle mass. And you're able to do that multiple times. So to generate a hypertrophy response, um, without, uh, de developing too much fatigue, that would be a way to do it because, uh, hypertrophy is basically a function of, uh, recruiting a bunch of motor units and doing it many times. And then being able to do that again, um, multiple times per week to increase the size of a muscle. So supersets, if you had, uh, no overlap between the exercises, so a deadlift and a press or squat and a bench, so minimal overlap, you would not expect any pre-fatigue from the first exercise to exist and bleed over into the second exercise such that you would start recruiting higher threshold motor units due to the fatigue of the muscles that you're now working. Rather, you would expect this cardiorespiratory sort of limitation that would uh, compromise how many reps and how many sets you could do. But if you did like a bench press first and then a press afterwards, you're basically starting from this pre-fatigue state. And so you have to start activating higher threshold motor units, even though you're lifting lighter weights. And that's going to generate an equivalent hypertrophy response, um, provided you were going to, you would do that a different way without a superset. So, um, this is the same threshold, the same idea behind using myo reps. The idea is that you're using a lifting lightweight to near failure and that's causing a recruitment of a bunch more motor units. And then you get to do expose them to multiple, uh, sets, um, multiple reps where you're using those, uh, additional motor units and getting, and getting hypertrophy response. Now, uh, on supersets, you're going to do that only if there's overlap between the first and the second exercise. If they're just, if you're not using the same primary movers, then I think again, you just end up compromising the volume 
and the uh, uh, motor unit activation because it's a cardiorespiratory sort of stress, not necessarily a uh, muscular fatigue type of stress. Um, you could, and with that in mind, you'd likely improve work capacity specific to that task. Um, since it's not locomotive, you know, like running, cycling, swimming, etc., I wouldn't expect this stuff to improve your swimming, cycling, you know, <laughs> anything like that. Um, much, I don't think the transfer would be that high. It'd be some non-zero transfer, sure. Um, just like I wouldn't expect that improving your running uh, performance would improve your ability to do this. Um, so that'd be a very inefficient way to go about improving your running and it'd be a very improved, just like it'd be a very inefficient way to improving your CrossFit just by doing running only and avoiding CrossFit. So I don't think there's really any benefit for doing supersets other than time. And it, the only time I would, I do them and that I recommend them is when people otherwise wouldn't be able to train due to time restrictions. So hopefully that answered your question. That is training vlog number 26. I apologize for the delay. I'm not traveling as much for the next uh, couple of months. Fingers crossed. But hey, if you want to submit your own training video for review, uh, you should shoot it uh, landscape at 1080p or higher. Use a, a service like WeTransfer, Google Share or something to share the video with us. Send it to media at barbellmedicine.com. There's more info in the description below. If you have a question, send it to media at barbellmedicine.com. Hopefully it's a good one. We will feature it here on this training vlog. And guys... Thank you so much for watching. We'll catch you next time. See ya.